Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round. I'm Kevin Johnson. This is my podcast, where we discuss hot topics in informatics so that, as we say, anyone can get it. This month, we have a really fun podcast in store. Daniel Fabry, who is a professor of biomedical informatics at Vanderbilt and a computer scientist, is joined by Shannon Rich, who many of you might remember as our funny and irreverent friend from podcast number one, and a really excellent songwriter in town whose name is Jane Bach. And the four of us have a really good time discussing the challenges of deploying interesting technology and innovations in the informatics space into clinical practice. Jane was great for this. Um, She's a native New Yorker, and you'll be able to know immediately that she's a New Yorker as soon as she starts talking. But she's actually been in Nashville since 1982 as a songwriter and is one of the true award-winning hit songwriters who's had a chance to record with people like Tammy Wynette and Reben McIntyre and Colin Ray and Jody Messina and lots and lots of other people. She's had a number one record called The Last One to Know with Reben McIntyre and has done a number of other things that you'll hear about. But most importantly, she's a teacher who has actually written a workbook for new songwriters called Songwriting and the Music Business. And you can tell that she's a teacher in the insightful way she asks questions that Daniel and Shannon and I try to answer. Jane and Shannon were kind of a great dynamic duo, and they really pushed us to talk in depth about a lot of things we weren't planning to talk about, which I think is going to be a theme in every single episode of this podcast. We started talking about deploying innovations, but it's pretty clear that when you start talking about deploying innovations into practice, you have to start getting into issues related to what if they're wrong, how much do you trust technology, how much do you trust information, does machine learning in some way make you more or less willing to trust the results that come out of it, are data sets themselves biased and should that somehow impact trust, and then things that even related to how personal data should be reused for research, or whether we should be requiring that personal data be reused for research. Yes, we talked a little bit about cancer. We got into a pretty serious topic, but we also talked a little bit about the President of the United States, arguably a much less serious topic, depending on your perspective. So without any further ado, let's get into this conversation. Okay, everybody, welcome to Informatics in the Round. Uh, We have an exciting episode today. Remember that the goal of informatics in the round is informatics so my mother can understand it. And my mom can't be here, but instead I have our favorite person, Shannon Rich. So Shannon, welcome. I hear you have a guest or two. Hi, Kevin. I did. I brought a friend of mine with me today. Her name is Jane Bach, and that's her husband, Gary. Gary, say hi. Gary, say a word or two. Hi, Gary. You can say Say something. hi. You can actually speak. I can actually speak. Yeah. <laughs> so Jane and I have been friends since 1996, mm-hmm. um, and she is um, very well known in this town. Wow. Infamous. Infamous. What, is she, now, what does she do in this town to make her well known, just to be clear? Hanging out with me. Okay. Got it. Not really. That kind of tainted her rep, but... Um, she is she is a songwriter. She's had a lot of number one hits and publishing deals for wow. years here. And um, she knows about songwriting in the round. So well, excellent. I'm so glad she came with me. And you started. I'm glad you asked. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Well, our our guest today, in addition to you two, is Dan Fabry. Dan Fabry is a PhD 
faculty member here within the department. And what would you, how would you describe your research interests and professional interests? Yeah, uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Uh, my, my professional interests are essentially applying machine learning uh, using clinical data to improve the way we treat patients in the world today. So how do we make uh, sick patients better using computers, data, and technology? Do you understand that? Not a word. Okay, we'll get into it. <laughs> okay, come on. you got to make it work better. This is the goal. What is machine learning? That's where you lost me. Okay. When, it, when you go outside in the morning and you see it's wet on the ground, do you think it's rained? Yes. Okay. So machine learning and mm, predicting, predicting something that, you know, is going to happen is not something that's new. We've been doing it for eons and generations, right? Is it, is the, are the fields going to have enough water to rain? And we'll look at the temperature. We'll look at, you know, did it rain yesterday? Is, are there clouds coming in? So that's kind of just like predicting what's going to happen tomorrow. So it's the ability of a computer to learn? Yeah, it's the ability to use a computer using historical data sets okay. to learn from past patterns. For example, if it continues to see Nigerian prints and someone says, hey, this is spam, it learns from those patterns, hey, this is likely spam going forward. Okay. So that's machine learning on something you're familiar with. Now, when I said, you know, using this data to improve treatment, well, what does all that mean? So, right, you know, in the last decade, we've, you know, you've used Netflix for machine learning to predict and recommend your favorite videos or Amazon to recommend and say, hey, you should really buy those slippers, right? You probably did that for the Christmas time period. But what we're now talking about is how do we use those same type of tools that recommended slippers or recommended movies to now help predict. So does it have to do with patterns? It does. Wow. Okay. You're getting this. <laughs> so but, I'm what's, not as dumb as I look. But so what's, <laughs> So what's the and difference? And for the record, I just want to say, you don't look dumb. Oh, so, go ahead. so I have a question about that. How long does it take for you to learn from that data? So if you predict, for instance, that I should have diabetes and I never get it, mm -hmm. how long does it take you to put that information back into your model? Sure. Well, let's talk about how you actually get that. So that's what's called labeling. So machine learning, often in this case, is called, I'll use quotes here, supervised machine learning. It has a label. It says, has cancer or not cancer? Well, guess where we get that? You know, much like someone's rating one of your songs and saying they like it or don't like it on Pandora, mm -hmm. what someone is doing for medical chart review is they're saying, yes, this person has cancer, they don't have cancer, by reading through every individual chart one by one and saying, yes, they have cancer and they don't have cancer. So it takes a lot of time, as you can imagine, but it's reading pages and pages of clinical notes to help say, yes, this person has cancer and not, don't, they don't have cancer. You're, so then you're not talking about a predictive factor. In other words, that someone can get cancer by virtue of certain patterns, but that they actually have it. Well, that's what we're trying to do is we look historically on past medical charts from the last decade or two and say, from all this information, did they have cancer or not after some period of time? And then we look back and say, once we found out they had cancer or not, we look back and use that information to say, what patterns can we use from that historical data to predict cancer? Did they have a specific type of gene? Did they have various types of phenotypes or symptoms for which that they're experiencing? And can you not have all of these patterns and symptoms and, and predictive qualities and still not get cancer? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, one of the th biggest challenges we have today is it's often a probabilistic model. It says from... Probably. A, this might happen. That's it. Probably <laughs> might happen. It ranges from zero to one. But, you know, in the real world, are we ever really certain? So it's not a crystal ball. I mean, it's no. not where you can look and, and have an actuality or something that, that's concrete. It's just, you know what, this is 
That's right. If this probability does not happen, right, if you've aggregated all of my data from my medical record and you suggest that I should have whatever, mm -hmm. cancer, and I don't get that, where in your process are you going back to see... Sure. So I, how is that being received by the fire department personnel? I, are they I mean, as long hesitant as it, or are they? So, so, as, so one in the National Fire case, we're actually not recording video. So they don't, we're not actually recording who's doing what. We only actually do catch accelerometer data in there. Um, but two, their response is anything that can improve our way in which we do care, that's fantastic, right? As long as it doesn't interrupt how they do care. So what's an accelerometer data? Thank you. An accelerometer I is... I couldn't pronounce it. Is, <laughs> an it accelerometer like is like what's Jetsons. in your Apple Watch. It does, it does. It is. It's, uh, so an accelerometer measures the motion, for example, of your arm. As you turn your Apple Watch around and around mm -hmm. and up and down, it measures motion. Right. And so oh. if you're doing CPR accelerometer. and your it. hands are moving up and down, that gives an got acceleration it. signature of that your hands are going up and down. And there's only so many procedures you can be doing in the back of an ambulance that correlate that, to right. that motion. And so intubation. Is it bad that I just went to another place with that? Sure. Where were you going? I it always was bad. worry. Okay, you then should. it's probably bad. Sorry. Back to accelerometer. I can I can tell by the blush on his face. He knows exactly where I went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> you, people do use technology for various uh, <laughs> alternative purposes. <laughs> All that makes sense. Sort Actually, of? surprisingly, it is totally making sense to me. Not surprisingly. So what's, but what's really interesting about this and why it relates to the point, Shannon, you were making earlier is if I'm a doctor and this guy comes to me with this really interesting whatever that let's just use a probabilistic model and I try it out on you and it doesn't predict the thing that you and I thought it might be predicting or it says that you are at risk for something but it actually never happens. Right. Does that bother you? Is that different than the weatherman saying it's going to have, we're going to have rain tomorrow, but it doesn't rain? Well, the weatherman's gotten a lot better in the last few years, right, as technology's improved. But it doesn't bother me from a patient care. It makes me curious. So how long does it take you to say, in your predictive model, this prediction didn't pan out? Does it, does it immediately feed back into that machine learning? And then what do you glean out of it to go back and say, how do I make this sharper? How do I make this more accurate? And maybe you're just How? stopping too soon. I so mean... Let me, so let me try this because, because this is actually Does a really important point. Does my question even point. make yeah, sense? It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the hardest questions in the world today. Right. So here's, here's uh, well, part of the answer. Uh -huh. So let's say that the weatherman is right 95% of the time. Yeah. What's that mean? It means that 95% of the time I know whether I want to take my dog outside or not. Okay, so you take, so the weatherman says that was terrible. No. <laughs> so no, so the weatherman predicts that there is going to be a tornado today. And you take your dog out and it's completely clear. Is the weatherman wrong? I mean, he's not correct, right? Okay, so 20, 24 hours have passed, there was no tornado. Was the weatherman wrong? What happened in the atmospheric conditions? Let's just say yes, he was yes, wrong. Yes, he was, okay, he was okay totally Kevin, wrong. he was so, wrong. So does that mean that you never listen to the weatherman again? No. Why not? Absolutely not. He's wrong. Because he's right 95% of the exactly. time. Exactly. <laughs> so the point is that five out of every hundred times, you expect him to be wrong, and you've decided that was okay, right? Right. So what the question to ask Dan really is, when you do these predictions, how many times can you be wrong before nobody would like to use your tool 
where they find it useless. If the weatherman was wrong 50% of the time, that means every day you could do a coin flip and do almost as well as the weatherman, possibly exactly the same as the weatherman, right? So there's a point at which I can either listen to the weather or I can say, rain, heads, it's tails, no rain today, and I'll be about as right as I was listening to the weatherman. So what's the right answer? How, how accurate do we have to be? So, I mean, let's just take the example of what Google came out with just a couple days ago. They had this big paper in Nature that said the new AI system, quote-unquote, artificial intelligence right. system that they just came out with, can detect uh, breast cancer more accurately than physicians. And so... Gary was just telling me about that. The, that is so weird. On the way in, he was just telling me that he had read that. The so, guy is smart. So, oh, he is. One of the, ba the most basic questions we often answer is, can a machine learning or AI system perform in an equivalent manner to a human doing that same job? Right? And so that's often the quote-unquote gold standard that we often try to replicate. Now, the benefit of a computer doing that is it can do it faster or potentially with less subjectivity than a human. Uh, the downside of that is, well, what happens if it gets wrong? Do you want it to act? Well, doesn't a human program that information in to uh, begin with? Will somebody call on me? Sh Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> She's raising her hand. Oh, my God. She raised when her hand. She must, want, she she must want more hand. wine. So the answer to that is yes. A person came up with that requirement, a person programmed that requirement, a person QA'd that requirement, and a person pushed it out into the wild on that requirement. So but if they, they mess that up in any one of those steps, then, then you're so, but here's So here's, I think this is one of the biggest and most important things to come out uh, of, of the last five years of research in computer science is that it used to be that we programmed all these rules of how to detect breast cancer. It used to be we had these definitions and statistics we used to run. What's changed in the last five years is we've now flipped it to say, this is cancer, this is not cancer, and we haven't actually told the system what the rules are for cancer. It learns by itself. Well, that's so, scary. I'm sorry. That's, so that's, 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 that's the big difference. That's, what's his name, Hal in, in uh, Space Odyssey or whatever or that movie Skyman. was called. It's all that. Yeah. So, so and we're going to have a whole episode about this particular issue. I'm seriously is, going to have to be listening to your <laughs> podcast. Seriously, so before this she was lying. But no. now, now she's really I mean, telling this is the really, truth. Well, I think it's also the fact that, of course, it's complicated. And I know nothing about any of this, but it's not that difficult to wrap my brain around it. Right. You know what I'm saying? As long as you have someone like Dan who's explaining it properly, I think that yeah. that, that has a lot to and, do with it. And she's my smart friend, not only my talented songwriting oh, friend. There it is. Worldly. Worldly. Worldly she's, been, she's been to the Bluebird and the Wild Horse. Right. I and have never played Lindsay. at the Wild Horse. <laughs> never. So, but speaking about horses, like, you know, one of the classic examples here is horses versus zebras, right? There you go. You know, all, all we do now in these new types of machine learning is we don't actually tell it the rules of how to differentiate a horse and a zebra, black and white versus whatever color of horse. We just say, that's a horse, that's a zebra, and the system learns by itself how to differentiate it. And that's what's kind of the big revolution. You don't have to mentally write down the rules to differentiate one horse from a zebra, you just tell it this is this and this is that. And well, it now itself. how does this, what we're talking about right this very second, relate to predicting something happening? The, the same type of analogy can be expanded to cancer. 
we just say this person has cancer, this person doesn't have cancer. We look at all the clinical notes, for example, of their past history to say how the patient progressed, what medications mm -hmm. they had, what imaging was their specific lesions or whatever it may be in their uh, CAT scans or MRI imaging. And from that historical example, it learns, much like black and white for zebras versus horses, it learns, oh, if it has these types of words and these types of structures in the image, this person is likely to progress to cancer. And so one of the biggest challenges we face is you might not care how the system differentiates horses and zebras. Just that like, it does. That it does. You just care that it gets it right. Right. But one of the biggest questions that we face in this informatics healthcare space today is do we care about the interpretability of these machine learning systems? Do we care why the system, what inputs did the system use to make its decision? And does it matter whether you care or not? Do you want the best prediction for well, your cancer? So right, because this is what they, he called it interpretability. People also call it explainability. So let me ask you this question because this is a question you guys can answer that we can't. So your, your doctor sends an alert, alert to you saying that we think this medication you're on may be causing a side effect. We can't tell you exactly why, but we want you to stop the medicine. Are you okay with that? No. No, I would want to know what it is that made you think that. But what if we can't tell you? And what if we I'm, know we're I'm almost gonna... always right, but we can't explain to you what the variables well, are? Well, generally, that... you know, I mean, now we get into something trust factor. You know, I mean, normally if you trust your doctor, yeah. okay, um, Gary just is going through cancer right now as we speak. And um, we, we trust his doctor. And so when his doctor says to him, I, they wasn't another tumor. It turned out to be just lesions on the back wall of your bladder, and I cleaned them out, and it's clear. You're, you know, it's it's gone. You're clear. Do I trust that, or do I now have to get somebody else? Right. You know what I'm saying to verify that. So here it's same thing. If my, if my doctor calls me and says, "Look, you know, the medication I've been giving you, I think that maybe you're going to end up with side effects from it." My first question would be. Why do you what think it, that? What, what makes you think that? And what that if the, would what, be my What if the response question. is, well, 100 other people like you had, had those side effects as well? Well, then I would probably say, then give me something that you have, uh, you think has a less chance of giving me side effects. So that's not really, that's interesting. So that's not an explanation. That's just data to say the system it's is telling us, in, it's the weatherman. It's the, this system is telling us that 98% of the time, when it says it has can't you have this side effect right. you're going to have it. You're okay right. with that answer? Because this fundamentally is what slows down the kind of research that many of us do in the fact that I would be okay with that right. is a problem. The fact no 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 oh. the fact that some of the best and again you should the the fact that some of the best techniques that we have have these hidden layers and it's impossible to know because they're hidden how they work and therefore we can't really tell you what they're doing but they do it really really well is sometimes enough that we that most people in medicine say, well, if we can't explain it, we can't give it to patients. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, just because you can't explain something, I can't explain certain things that happen, you know, physically that happen in, in, in a day, but I know that they're going to happen or that they happen. I know that if the sun comes out and I stand under the sun, that I get sunburned. Can I give you an actual explanation of how I know, you know, why that's going to happen? No, I'm not a scientist. I can't tell you. But I know it's mm. happened because I know from my experience that if I stand out in the sun yeah. without anything on, I'm going to get sunburned. But now let's say there's no scientist that can provide that interpretability for you. 
Does that? Then I would have to rely on my my uh, my own personal data, my own experience with it. If you're telling me as a doctor, if you're saying to me, I can't give you the actual scientific data why this is going to happen, but I'm telling you there's a probability that it will happen. I would probably listen to that. I would be okay with that. So it sounds like the first step is not to be Shannon and be hypercritical of every single human being on the planet, but instead to actually trust to be your Why doctor. I am single, chapter 438. <laughs> so true, so true. Well, I mean, I can, I can understand important. someone wanting more detailed information. I can understand that, but... To me, there are certain things that are beyond my ken. So, I, I don't, even if you explain them to me, it wouldn't make any difference. So this is where like cl- traditional clinical trials come in, right? So we, in a traditional clinical trial for a new type of cancer drug, for example, we do a case in control where some cancer patients get the drug and some get a placebo, and then we see the survival rates. Right. The challenge with that is that those studies are very time-intensive, costly, and take a long time to evaluate their success rate. And so there seems to be a huge opportunity for some of these machine learning and AI systems to improve care, but if each one has to go through the same type of rigorous clinical trial process, do we limit the progress we could have in providing care going forward? And so there exists some threshold. Some type of clinical trials are needed for if I give you a new type of drug, Mm -hmm. but if I make a recommendation system of, hey, you might want to try this different type of drug, that might not need a full clinical trial. And so there's some cutoff between... Well, to me, hey, you might need this other drug is the clinical trial. Is other, is <laughs> you know, then you're just, you're using me as a guinea pig, you know. Mm-hmm. And, is, and is, yeah. It seems like there's a lot of gray area between those two yeah. things, right? What's a clinical trial? There's, and implicitly and there's risk. Not. There's an implicit risk to the patient, right? The, the greater the risk and the drastic, more drastic a change to normal clinical practice, the more likelihood you probably need a full clinical trial. In contrast, if you're just recommending a decision, but then still f- keeping the physician in the loop, for example, having the physician, rec- the system recommends, much like Netflix says, hey, I think you'll like this Brad Pitt movie Based because on what you've, you liked right. Brad Pitt before. Right. Like so. now, it's saying, now it's saying to the doctor, hey, I think you should think about having this patient stop this medication, but the doctor makes that final determination. Right. right. That was my next thing, It's that there's always a human element involved, even with AI, whether it's the, the human that's inputting the information yep. to begin with. We were talking about this the other day. If, if that human makes a mistake at the very beginning, then everything that that AI sure. computes yeah. is going to be wrong. And, and that's actually, that's a great segue because it turns out that's the notion of what's called bias. The whole idea that I have a data set. The data set is based on you guys as my patients, me putting things in the system. Mm -hmm. And if I've never really selected for a representative population of patients, let's just say all my patients are middle class white men. You take my data, you analyze it. It says that there's a pretty good chance that this drug is going to cause a side effect in you. Dr. Fabry, who's now an MD, I've just made you see that promotion. See how you see that? One? You, you can ask my wife that. Yeah, says okay. I, my 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 augmented intelligence agent has told me that you are at risk for this side effect. You need to stop the medicine. Neither of us is aware. You're not aware. He's not aware that my data set was biased. It included no women. Exactly. But didn't that happen with Ambien? Tell me about that. Ambien. It. If I'm the only one that knows this. 
When it was first prescribed... If not, we'll just say it's another joke you're making. Okay, all right. <laughs> when it was first prescribed, they found out years later that they were way over-prescribing women by giving them the same dose that they were giving men. And it had to do with the fact that the clinical trials use men subjects right. way more than women. So well, this you is, can Google that and look could, that up. No, I but believe I'm just me, telling before, you. before it gets out into the world, I will have well, done that. He will do that. <laughs> so if I'm wrong about this, you'll never have heard me say that. because Kevin Unless it's an outtake it. and I decide to put it on the So in other words, if you say to me, Jane. I do remember that, though. Based on my data, you need to stop taking this medication and try this make I need to say to you, well, what in your trials did you try it on women my age? You know, how many women my age as opposed mm-hmm. to how many men? And, you know, I mean, were yeah. they musicians? Did they, you know, I mean, yeah. what what is it that makes you think? So now I would say to you, knowing what we're talking about now, I would say to you, well, what are you basing your, what are you basing your information on? And, what? and to make this problem even worse, there's a lot of pieces of information that we don't know that go into this. There's some drugs, for example, that sunlight exposure can cause, you know, severe burns. And if I only find out that all these patients didn't have burns because they all work in the coal mines, and then you go and give the same medication to a population... A lifeguard. To a lifeguard. (laughs) You you would never have collected that data in the first place. In the first place. And so... Whoa, it's very convoluted, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm Jane, trying to do wrap... you want it? Are you tempted like I am to give Dan all your medical data? <laughs> I mean, so that, that's actually one of the biggest questions today, right? Wow. How much, how much do you want your personal data oh, used well. for, for clinical research and, uh, and, tra- and training if that's systems? If that's the only place that we're going, mm-hmm. then I wouldn't mind my medical data being used because it's for the greater good, and I wouldn't mind that. But if that information is getting out somewhere else, I would mind. So what, what's the difference there? Explain to me how you differentiate getting out. Well, of course, if I were younger and um, I were How thinking, could you be any younger than 25? I know. I don't know. <laughs> Who, you know. Yeah, I've um, known her since she was two. <laughs> if I, well, and I were thinking of a career, okay? Yeah. And there's certain information, if it gets out and, and an employer finds out about it, like they were smoking status is wrong on your electronic medical record. That could well, never happen. I mean, not only, not yes, if you smoke or whatever, I don't, but if you smoke or whatever. But other things, I have asthma, I have chronic asthma. I mean, there might be people who say, well, you know, she's going to end up missing work. She's going to, you know, she's not a good bet. She's not someone that we may want to hire. And so I wouldn't want to. So the reselling of health data scares you. Oh, God, yes. The reselling of any data scares me. Okay, but the the use, uh, so the use of hospitals using that data to improve care locally. That wouldn't bother me. No, that wouldn't bother me. What about the next step of multiple hospitals coming together to build you know, we just talked about the example of, you know, you have one group of popular patients in the south that have diabetes risk, and then mm-hmm. another patient set of patients in the northeast that have a different uh, disposition for mm-hmm. diabetes. What's your thoughts about then combining those two populations together to build an even better diabetes prediction system? Well, isn't that what we would want to do? Is to be, no, is, is that the wrong answer? Is to be able to... Um, gather as much information as possible in order to make an intelligent determination, I would think. Sure. You need, you know, knowledge is power, so. 
But we, how much of the data that you're collecting in, in an electronic medical record end up with the insurance company? Oh, there's another So, thing. So oh. then... The, the data right now, the, the, the data are that most of the insurance companies or payers already have access oh, to I more know. data than you. I, I, I'm aware. And so the real question here is, can you live with the idea that in addition to the insurance company, other people may have access to your data? Well, if, your insurance com- if the insurance companies have access to that data, you can guarantee that other people have access to the data. I, I'm but, willing to bet. And, and just to give you an example, so Gary has cancer, mm-hmm. as you've mentioned. Yes. Um, and of course... Well, our, right now he's cancer-free. Congratulations. Okay, that deserves applause. Okay. I get the official word Monday. Yes, okay. Monday. So the fact of the matter is, I guarantee you that the therapy that you were on was based on a protocol mm-hmm. that came from the kinds of data that Dan or I or others need to do machine learning. It's just that it was not de-identified, likely, and it was joined with as much data as possible to figure out what other patients received and how they did long-term. And then they used that to decide a few things, but without getting into a lot of details, whether the average patient like Gary is close enough to Gary that he should get the same protocol, or whether Gary has some particular variables that they probably tested the first day or two that would suggest he's not like the patients in the protocol and therefore has to go off the protocol to get different drugs. Or maybe even the same drugs, but with a different Different dosages, right, right. right. And so all of that required a lot of patients just like you to say to their providers, I want my data to go for the greater good. Right, and I have no problem with that. But now, of course, the insurance company has access to all of that data. They they already did. Oh, no, I know they do. I could tell that by when I get... The, the quarterly, uh, you know, from the insurance company when they say this is what was paid or what Medicare paid or right. what are, you know, other but insurance But how much paid. different would it be from a, a, from a clinical perspective and a data collection perspective if people did not fear having some type of retribution toward them for data that they supplied? And, and, I, and, that, and that's what you're hearing from her is... I don't mind giving my data for the greater good. I just don't want it used against me. So do you hear this when you look at uh, groups of data that you're trying to use for machine learning? Yeah, and so that you know, there's a couple ways that we, people deal with this. One is de-identifying your data, right? The data that you give doesn't actually get used in its raw form. Your name, your birth date, your address are all removed or de-identified. And then when so it's given from, a number, it's, it's given a random number, right? and from there people can use that but actually not tie it back to you. Mm-hmm. That's one type of de-identification. Another type is instead of giving individual patient records, researchers get the counts or frequencies right. by which a medication and a cancer diagnosis occurred together, or this drug and this, you know, lab result occurred together. Mm-hmm. And so that's a different way that data can be shared. And so there's all these different flavors of ways that people try to mask or hide uh, different values to, to, start, to try to help uh, people share data. But it's still challenging. Well, it is challenging, and there's still the element of my data is still being used in there, and mm-hmm. I just want to make sure that it's fine for the research part of mm-hmm. it but that it's not going to get out anywhere else. It's kind of like when you have a child in school and that child is having um, uh, <laughs> discipline Don't issues. Don't talk about me. No, no, discipline <laughs> issues, let's sure, say. Yep. And, and the mother says, well, I think maybe he's got ADHD or something. Mm-hmm. Man, that is not something you want the school 
to know if that's not the case. And sometimes it's not even anything you want the school sure. to know, and, and period. This, this you know, it military. follows with them for yep. the rest yep. of their but lives. But I mean, the thing about it is, is that I, I think from a societal perspective, the, the concern is I don't mind you using any of my data for anything you want, as long as you don't make me pay for it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to go to The Hague because you took my DNA and my personality and saw my Twitter account and said, get this woman in the prison. Got it. Right? Yep. I mean, yep. that's the thing. I don't mind you having all of that It won't take your DNA. We already have enough on you. But I know. that's okay. I know. Okay, I want to ask another question because okay. we've, we're have we really covering some deep stuff here. But I, I, I want to make sure that... It's the wine. It, well, but no, it's important stuff. So, and Jane's not drinking wine. No, so what's Jane's her drinking excuse? water. She's just, she, her wine is life. It's me. It's just infused with life. So, so one of the hardest things that, that I know Dan does here is he takes all of this into consideration, and then he tries to get groups of people to actually use the technologies he builds. Because believe it or not, in our department here, we have papers of really interesting insights that never get seen by patients. So what is it that you do to get things deployed? How do you get things from, I think it's an idea, to I gotta get it in front of patients? Yeah, I mean, so that's, this is the uh, side of healthcare technology that many people don't see. It's, you know, you have, just like starting a small business or, you know, starting something small, and you, a lot of it's just perseverance and pushing it through. You have some small idea, you write some paper, you publish some results, and then it's going through the bureaucracy of approvals to try to get it out into the world and say, hey, I think this is a good idea. I think we can get cancer patients de detected earlier. Uh, I think we can help you know, neonatal intensive care patients get out of the hospital faster and safe, more safe. Um, going through that process takes time, right? You have to get the appropriate resources. You have to pull the right data. You have to get all the appropriate consents and or research protocols put in place such that we can do this and release these tools into the public in a safe manner, but at the same time, try to push the boundaries on new approaches for uh, deploying How do you technology. expedite that? The big thing, biggest thing is to take it from a one-off process of deploying these tools in healthcare to making it a repeatable, regular process, where going to deploy the next tool no longer takes a year. It's just one piece, uh, one new step, because you've already laid the foundation for deploying these systems and having the appropriate controls in place uh, in the environment. So it's basically, talk about repetition, it's basically the same thing as determining if you are prone to having cancer because you, you've created a pattern. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. No, or, or, or like when, you, when you're writing music, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, I mean, maybe you're really lucky and you show up at a round and you, you start <laughs> writing a song and it's good. But, but also, like, you know, you, you, you go one time, two times, you get more comfortable, you find a group of people you can kind of feed off of, and, and after that, the, the fifth time is just easier, sixth time or seventh or tenth time, because you've learned kind of right. sort of well, things, pathway. Yeah. Right. Things get easier the more you do them. And, but yeah. I was thinking... That has to... not worked out for me with marriages. Oh, I'm just well. going to say. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't apply to everything, but... Anyway, Interesting. Ahead. Now, one thing I do want to ask, I guess, because back maybe a half hour ago, when <laughs> when you were asking your question, I actually thought you were asking, 
Well, how long do you wait for somebody to get the cancer? Let's say you predict that somebody is going to get cancer. How long do you wait for them to get it before you say, okay, this didn't work? Or, or feedback the result of you didn't get cancer, feedback to improve the model. Right. Exactly. But maybe it's not that she's not going to get cancer. She just hasn't gotten it yet. Maybe, you know, it's kind of like success and failure. Well, we, we have a great example of this. So one of our faculty actually has this um, model which allows you to predict suicide. But then the question you have to ask yourself is, what do you do? Do you admit these patients to the hospital for the rest of their life to prove that it's not going to happen? Exactly by the way, my point. Right. How long do you well, it's, wait? It's a Tom Cruise movie. What's it? Um, uh, Minority Report. Report. Oh, the Minority Report. Right. right. Gosh, I'm so far behind on movies and TV. Oh, this, this is, is like an 20 old years movie. ago. Yes, say, you are way behind now. <laughs> it's an old movie. So I have to show you guys something. What? So the people who are listening to this can't see it, but Shannon, what am I holding? <clears throat> it is a teddy bear with the brown nose and black eyes, and it's blonde. Isn't he adorable? And it's I cute. love it. So I had this research project, and he'll be able to talk about this. It was called, this is the teddy bear that we called the Medi Teddy. The idea was that the Medi Teddy, well, here, I'll let it talk to you. Hi, I'm Medi Teddy. I can help you with your medications. Press the help button on the screen to find out more about me. And then, let me see if this well, is Well, he's kind of cute. So, so watch this. Where is their screen? So now screen? imagine, <laughs> supposing you have a little belly pain. Oh, I'm so sorry you hurt there. Sometimes the medicines can cause that. I'll make sure we remember. So the idea was you could use that feedback, plus you could actually use the fact that you know where they pushed to send a message to the electronic health record that says a patient is reporting abdominal stomach side pain. effect or, or stomach right, pain right. with the medicine. Right? Maybe what you should have done with the rash was scratched its arm. Maybe. Well, somewhere in here, I can't find it. There, is a, there was one that has a headache, and these were all prototypes. Yes, you can hold my teddy bear, Shannon. Don't mess with this There's tail. There's nothing on its tail. Right. So, so guess what happened oh, to this? Oh, it's so cute. Nothing. Nothing. No. <laughs> right. And the it reason is because of the challenges that we wow. have with deployment. We made prototypes. We tried to get them out. We recognized that there were other companies that were sort of doing similar things. And that's what you're expert in. This is what you're, didn't you have a grant that kind of dealt with some of these translational issues? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, part of my entire career has been taking some of the stuff, getting off the sh shelf, and also just starting to spin out companies. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, an academic setting may not be the best place to launch stuff. In, in some cases, you need to spin out technology into companies and have the company... Corporate. You need you know, something corporate. Well, I mean, you know, ac academic institutions are fantastic for research, but they probably aren't the best institutions for coming up with good marketing, good customer support in terms of product and design and purchasing mm -hmm. products and deployment. And so that's one of the things that we've been focusing on is... How do we spin out technology from the stuff we invent? Did you try going, I mean, listen to me. Did you try going to Mattel or Hasbro or any of the toy companies, see if they wanted to get involved? I mean, not, not the toys were not my thing. I don't oh. know that <laughs> Kevin can talk about that. But, uh, but we, you know, we, we talked, we, you know, they're, they're becoming more and more like an app uh, environment. Like iPhones have apps for your, your, your phone. You, there's now starting to be more app environments uh, on the EMR systems. But, mm -hmm. you know, one of the biggest things that we find, you know, with the teddy bear example or even your Fitbit or any of these devices is that there's a period of time when the person is engaged and involved uh, and then it's no longer an immediate concern and then it kind of decays off in their interest. And so one of the biggest challenges is how do we consistently and constantly uh, have health technology 
work to improve patient care while the patient's care uh, the patient's own interest in that care declines. Well, as the like patients these, don't care. Well, the patients don't <laughs> exactly. care. Exactly. Well, or they're, 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 they, they feel, or to be precise, they feel better. They right? feel better, I mean, right. You know, if, if you're feeling better, why are you going to log every dose you, you take or whatever it may be, unless you have to? And all of this is actually why you have to do studies, because, for example, the MediTeddy idea uh, morphed into an application that runs on an iPhone, and it was very successful. But what we learned was, even though it worked, after a few weeks, kids stop using it. And if you if you if I were to ask you if you've ever used Weight Watchers or any of these technologies or tried to stop quit smoking, many people try to do these things. It's going along great, and then they just stop. And there's a whole field called behavioral economics that's also a part of what we think about, which is how do I help you make behavior change by giving you variable levels of inducements, so that as you get further and further along, there's a different reason why you want to keep playing. It's also called game theory, right? and there's that whole strategy of how you take something that Dan has built and deploy it, which he's also an expert in. And when you say inducement, you're not just referring to giving birth to a new product, right? I, that would be induction, okay. but yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah. See, everybody wants to be a comedian. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so listen, this has been unbelievably useful for me. Have you? Do you, do you have any questions that remain? Interesting. Really interesting. It's really interesting, and the one was good. Thank you, thank you. That and I learned a lot. I mean, I think the, the key thing we talked about a lot here is just these data and how much they matter and machine learning and what it's all about and some of the nuances around great ideas that Dan and his team might have that if we can't explain it a certain way or don't get the right level of trust, don't get out. And that's that's a big part of what we think about in what we well, call Well, because I always feel like the most important thing is information. Yes. I mean, and as a patient, I want to have the most information that I can get. I don't want to have too much information because sometimes, like I just did, it's way over my head, and I, <laughs> you know, great. and it's confusing. But um, what will his mom get it? Oh, well, if I got it, his mother will get it. I okay. mean, you know, I'm well, somebody. mom, you if you're listening, <laughs> congratulations, you should get this. You that, will get this. That'll be the first conversation over the Thanksgiving table that I don't have to repeat more than once. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, listen. Speaking of information. I remember hearing some information about you being a songwriter oh, I am. and us being in the round. We are in the round. Would this you be is... willing to play a song for us? Well, you know what? I just happen to have a guitar with me. That's Do you want me to that... play it? Do you no. Play... Do you play guitar? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I Jane, play piano, that. though. I do play piano. Well, we don't have a piano Jane, here. pull up that old thing and let's hear something. Oh, okay. Me... Uh, tell us a little bit about the song. Well, this is... My husband asked me, well, what song are you going to do? You know, because I've been very fortunate. I've got a lot of songs recorded and had some hits and by people who can really sing, not me. But um, I am what's called a performing songwriter. And um, I decided I'm going to do the very, very first song I ever had recorded. And it was recorded by, I moved here from New York City, which is where I was born and raised. Mm -hmm. and, um, Down the street from the president. Wow. Well, we're not going to get into that. <laughs> but she will get into that with Rob. Got it. Um, and now you totally got me off track. Oh, right. So <laughs> I, I totally, I mean, it's such unpleasant memories. Um, <laughs> she literally grew up in that. Right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, okay, what, what? Oh, right. <laughs> my god back to your song yeah, yeah back to my song no anyway right so i i got signed to a publishing company very quickly when i moved down here i moved here 37 years ago and there the community was a lot smaller music community there were 
hardly any of my species being women that were writing. <laughs> and um, so they were always looking for girls songwriters. And um, so I, I was able to get a, a, a publishing deal very quickly. I was very fortunate. And one day my publisher came to me and he said, you know, Janie, we, we love what you're writing. And, you know, you're a great R&B writer and you're a great rock writer and you write great pop songs, but you're not turning in any country songs. And we're here in Nashville. And I said, well, you know, I've never written a country song. So I, uh, I wrote this and I was very fortunate. It became my first cut, my first recording. So who, who recorded Miss it? Tammy Wynette. And so Ooh, it was like, it was like... Where do I go from here? But I was very fortunate to go many places I have from to ask there. Just one question: that Sure. That song so you get this song recorded by Tammy Wynette. It obviously does okay. It, what did you buy? Oh no, no, no! That it didn't do anything at that point for me to buy anything. Okay. First song that I um, was able to say, yeah, this is this was financially because that's what you're asking, right? Was financially rewarding was a number one record. That that was, you know, where you see um, copious amounts of money at one time. <laughs> well, back in those days, I mean, you know, everything was just uh, terrestrial radio. Yeah. Now we do a lot of streaming and whatnot, and the money is, is negligible. It's really horrific. But, well, <laughs> well it is. It's, people it's, used to say in this town that you could always tell when a songwriter's last big hit was by the age of their car oh uh, well I don't know I haven't had a big hit in a while and I just got a new car so <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay well this is the the wonderful thing about this not only because it was my first cut what a wonderful thing when you get your first song recorded I mean it's like oh my gosh and it was recorded by Demi Wynette are yeah. you kidding yeah. but I don't know, you're you're young, but the Jordanaires, who used to be Elvis Presley's backup singers. Oh, I thought those were Michael's kids. Michael no, Jordan's no, kids. no, the Jordanaires, they were ah, phenomenal. They were actually gospel singers who, uh, there were four of them, mm -hmm. and uh, just phenomenal. And they sang backup on this song, and it's, which is, you know... Anyway, it's called After Dark. This was my, in, my impression of a country song. There you go. After dark, after dark, like the shadows we fall in love, like the first time in no time at all. Making up for the hours that we've been apart, and we come together in love after dark. 5.30 comes early, and we've both got jobs to do. This overtime leaves little for me and you. We got bills on the table, but there's love in our hearts. We're living the good life in love after dark. Hey, after dark, after dark, like the shadows we fall in love like the first time in no time at all. Make And we come together in love after dark. Second verse. From sun up to sundown, the work never stops. It takes all we get just to keep what we've got. Yeah, we could sure use the money 
from a late shift or two. But if I'm gonna moonlight, I'm gonna moonlight with you. Day after dark, after dark, like the shadows we fall in love like the first time in no time at all. Making up for the hours that we've been apart and we come together in love after dark. You gotta clap now, come on. After dark, after dark, like the shadows we fall in love like the first time in no time at all. Shake it. Making up for the hours that we've been apart And we come together in love After dark, after dark, oh, yeah <laughs> After dark, after dark, yeah oh, <laughs> There we go <laughs>